outer space. Yeah, oh, the just the absolute magic and wonder those two words could manifest. At least at one time, I mean, now outer space, big deal. Oh, yeah, we've been there. It's no, but wow. I mean, uh, just thinking back, uh, the space was just the, the final frontier and all that stuff. But it was just so much more important. I mean, that, that there was little six-year-old PQ River uh, watching Apollo 7. Uh, it, it, all of these, I mean, that's my earliest, like, real solid memory. But I think I was into the planets and all of that stuff. Uh, well, I had my older cousins once again. And my uncle, the father of those said older cousins, built an actual observatory in the backyard. So as a very little kid, of course, oh, but put the little kid up on a chair and make him look in the telescope, which for any number of reasons uh, that terrified me. <laughs> of course, but of course, because you had to like stand balanced. It was not made for a seven-year-old with bad equilibrium to see. Uh, no, no, no. And, that, you know, that was fine. I still loved outer space. I just didn't like looking in Uncle Harry's telescope all that much. And yeah, outer space. Yeah, leave it to me to turn within minutes the entire thing into some awful childhood trauma that makes everybody run away. Yeah, it's the PQ River Touch once again as we open another Overnightscape Central, the program that you really should have contributed to. And at the end of this show, just like every week, I give you an opportunity to join us the next time with a new topic. And uh, yeah, uh, and we have someone back after a long absence, uh, back on the center. And this always makes me happy. Yeah, that's right. Simon is back. And uh, we're also going to hear from Doc Slees, and we're going to hear from Frank Edward Nora, of course. And uh, I think Dave in Kentucky has even snuck in the back door. So uh, uh, keep your ears peeled. And uh, frankly, uh, who sh where should we start? Let's, uh, let's do this at random here. And here's Dave in Kentucky. Thanks, PQ. Outer space. <laughs> you know I like this subject because outer space is where the Anunnaki come from. You know, I have a T-shirt. Uh, I wore it on the exit ramp one time. shows a uh, winged Anunnaki that says, uh, well, the Anunnaki doesn't say it, but the shirt says it, from, from heaven to earth they came. And that sounds like a supernatural event <laughs> until you consider the possibility that um, depicting the Anunnaki with wings just means that they were capable of flight. And um, until you consider the fact that uh, heaven or the heavens just means sky. So from heaven to earth they came just means they descended from the sky. 
And if they descended from far enough up in the sky, uh, that means they came from outer space. Um, they, they came here to set up bases here on Earth to uh, exploit Earth's natural resources. And they created a workforce through genetic engineering by um, combining their DNA with the DNA of the partially evolved proto-humans who already lived here. And uh, the purpose of this workforce was to tend their gardens in the Eden of Sumeria, um, as it says in Genesis. Well, it doesn't say it's in um, Sumeria, but it says the Garden of Eden, or actually the Gardens of Eden or Eden. You know, and, and, and not just to garden, to be gardeners or, or landscapers or whatever, but, you know, Sitchin claimed that um, they were created to work in the mines. Now, the name Anunnaki was, was carried on in corrupted forms by uh, certain groups of humans who were most closely related to them, you know. People like the Anasazi out where uh, PQ lives and the Ashkenazi that uh, Frank is descended from. Now, this kind of garbling of the name Anunnaki re reminds me of that Star Trek episode where uh, these people have this holy phrase, uh, Eplebnista, <laughs> that turns out to have been corrupted from another phrase entirely. When you would not say the holy words of Eplebnista, I doubted you. I did not recognize those words. You said them so badly. Look at these three words written larger than the rest. We the people. In the Old Testament, or the uh, Hebrew Bible, the Anunnaki are called the Yahweh Elohim. Now, Elohim is, is the plural form of the word for God, and Yahweh is a proper name. So, Yahweh Elohim just means the gods called the Yahweh, or as I like to call them, the uh, Yahwehlians. And the Yahwehlians include not only the major gods, you know, the uh, Captain Kirk's and above of the uh, Yahwehlian Starfleet, but lesser gods as well, the so-called angels, who, um, like the Anunnaki, are often depicted in artwork as having wings, um, which only means that they were capable of flight. <laughs> I haven't found a single case yet where the Bible says they actually had wings. In fact, um, in the Bible, angels are usually just described as men, which makes sense because of our DNA being so similar to theirs. That's why when the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair in Genesis 6, that they were able to interbreed with them and, and produce offspring. They were so similar to us in appearance that in a lot of cases, the, the humans who encountered them in the Bible didn't realize they were angels until after the fact. This happened to Abraham in Genesis 18, for example, and I think to uh, Lot in uh, Genesis 19. 
So whatever happened to the Anunnaki? Well, apparently, at some point, they left Earth. I'm not sure why. Maybe they had uh, pretty much exhausted the resources that they came here to exploit. Or maybe they moved on because they found greener pastures elsewhere. After all, Jesus said, In my Father's house are many mansions. So maybe they went off to tend to one of those other mansions. But, you know, our world religions several of them anyway, teach that they'll be back someday, whether it's the uh, coming of the Messiah or the return of the Christ, whatever. We know that could take a long, long time from our perspective, since uh, if they're traveling at near light speed, their time would pass much more slowly than ours. The Bible mentions more than once that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And in the Hebrew parts of the Bible, the word that is translated as the Lord is Yahweh. So what this passage means is that for the Yahwehlians, one of their days could be a thousand of our years. And this could be for two different reasons. One being the Yahwehlians' extremely long lifespans, uh, which they passed on to the very early humans that they created. And, and um and these lifespans makes them seem immortal to us. Uh, and the other reason is the effect of the time dilation when they're traveling at near light speed. Uh, Frank once told me, uh, either on the exit ramp or in an email, I can't remember which, that my sermon series is, is more science fiction than religion. And I guess he's right about that although I was heavily influenced as a child by what they taught me in Sunday school. In fact, I was doing a lot of reading on my own. And uh, and one time when the preacher asked us kids which book of the Bible was our favorite, and most people said Psalms or something, you know, I was precocious enough to uh, pick the book of Revelation. (laughs) But, you know, I guess I was more heavily influenced by science fiction, mainly juvenile fiction um, at that age anyway, you know, stuff that was written by Robert Heinlein especially, which our school library had a lot of. Um, One in particular I remember was called uh, Have Space Suit, Will Travel, which was clever marketing because Have Gun, Will Travel was a popular TV show at the time. (laughs) I've kind of considered halfway seriously doing something similar for my uh, dating site tagline. Have Viagra, Will Travel? Yeah, maybe not. (laughs) As a teenager, I was also heavily influenced by the original Star Trek series as I'm sure you can tell. And uh, at about that same time, I moved on from Heinlein's juvenile books to his uh, adult novels. My favorite being The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, which is a favorite of most libertarians. But I'm also a big fan of the one right before that. It was called Farnham's Freehold. It begins as uh, World War III is uh, breaking out and the missiles are being launched. And um, it has an early scene in which all the women have to strip down to uh, bra and panties because it's so hot in the fallout shelter. (laughs) 
you can see why that would appeal to a teenage boy. Uh, I still have the 1965 paperback edition, but uh, unfortunately some of the pages are stuck together. I also have a paperback copy of probably my favorite non-Heinlein book from my early years, The Girls from Planet Five. It's by a guy named uh, Richard Wilson. I don't think I've seen anything else by him at all. But in this book, um, the women have taken over most of the United States, and only Texas remains as a place where men can be free. <laughs> I think this was because Texas was originally a republic, and when they joined the Union, they reserved the right to withdraw again if they needed to. But anyway, in, in the book, the Texans call the rest of the country Biddy Land. <laughs> and uh, then those uh, sexy aliens from Planet 5 show up. But, as Doc Slees might say, I digress. Space, the final frontier. Yeah, I wonder if it really is the final frontier. Three-dimensional space, anyway. Seems to me that extra-dimensional space would be much harder for us to explore in any way that we could understand. And uh, even that um, weird non-spatial dimension called time might be a more final frontier than three-dimensional space. But... I enjoy those old Star Trek episodes that explore three-dimensional space and, and sometimes time travel. And I enjoy the Star Trek movies, too. Some of them. Uh, a few weeks ago, I went to see uh, the director's cut of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, at our local theater. It was one of those uh, uh, Turner Classic Movies, Fathom Events, um, they re-released it in honor of the 40th anniversary of uh, of the movie's original release. The Wrath of Khan is by far the best Star Trek movie. Despite the death scene where uh, Spock regurgitates that socialist propaganda that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. If he had just said, I did it to save you, Jim, and the others, and the ship, it would have been a lot better. And it would have shown his human side rather than falling back on that stupid, that would not be logical crap. But, you know, despite me not liking the death scene, it's, it's still by far the best Star Trek movie. You know, the first one, Star Trek The Motion Picture, didn't really feel like Star Trek at all, even, even though it used a recycled plot from the original series. You know, where V'ger is just a more elaborate version of Nomad, if you remember that episode. Uh, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock wasn't bad, but it, you know, that was kind of a cheap trick to kill off Spock only to revive him in the very next episode. Although, they did foreshadow it in The Wrath of Khan. You know, I guess they felt like the best way to work in that socialist propaganda was to have a tear-jerking death scene where the individual sacrifices himself for society. Kind of like the Three Stooges. Do you hereby solemnly swear to devote the rest of your lives to the cause of duty and humanity? For duty and humanity! 
And to continue the propaganda, um, Spock's resurrection is made possible by technology created by the state. <laughs> well, at least they didn't say his death was just a dream like they did on Dallas when they uh, resurrected Bobby Ewing. And uh, all the other Star Trek movies after the third one were just crap as far as I'm concerned. They lost me when they went back in time to save the whales. And then they sat around the campfire and got stupid like the worn out old farts they are. Or were, anyway. Most of them are gone now. Uh, Spock, Bones, Scotty, Uhura. I'm talking about the actors who played them. But Kirk and Sulu are still around. <laughs> and since CNN is kind of changing directions, maybe they could revive uh, Crossfire. You know, that old show that uh, uh, Pat Buchanan and, and Michael Kinsley used to be on. That's the pair that I remember the most. There were others. But if you never actually saw that, maybe... Maybe you at least saw the skit uh, from Saturday Night Live that kind of lampooned that. You know, the one where Dan Aykroyd would always say, Jane, you ignorant slut. But my idea is to do Crossfire with uh, uh, William Shatner and George Takai, but to have them do it in character. <laughs> you know, on the right, retired Admiral James T. Kirk, and on the left, Former Starfleet fencing champion, Mr. Sulu. Now, that would be must-watch TV for me. You know, I know I'm kind of in the minority here because most everybody else here is a, is a Star Wars nut instead of a... Um, I don't want to call myself a Trekkie. I don't even like Trekker, but I guess a Star Trek nut. But I like Star Wars, too. Um, well, Star Wars also. Not Star Wars 2. The best one was the original Star Wars movie. You know, Episode 4. Which I saw at a theater in Cincinnati when it first came out. It was just about a perfect realization of what those um, old space opera serials could have been if they'd had uh, good characters and good special effects. Um, kind of like, you know what the Indiana Jones series was for the old uh, Republic Adventure serials. Although some of those Republic serials were pretty good, you know, in their own right. Um, the next one, Empire Strikes Back, was okay, I guess. But they, they really lost me with Return of the Jedi, and I never went back to that series. First off... The title was supposed to have been Revenge of the Jedi, but they apparently didn't think that was politically correct enough. Idiots. And second, they introduced those stupid Ewoks, which really ruined it for me. And every other adult, I would hope. I've heard that George Lucas started introducing all these, uh, you know, cartoony characters to keep his grandkids entertain, which is fine if you're just making kid movies, but Star Wars originally appealed to adults as well, and I feel like they pulled a bait and switch on us. Then, of course, it only got worse when they sold the franchise to Disney, as you well know. Before Star Wars, though, there was uh, Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. 
I recently rewatched that on um, Turner Classic Movies, and every time I watch it, I see it from a slightly different angle. Not because the movie's changed, but because I have. See, first time I saw it, I went for the light show. This was when it first came out in, what, 68? Something like that. You know, because I was doing drugs at the time. I wanted to see a good light show. <laughs> well, now that I'm not doing drugs anymore, I realize that the uh, the light show represents uh, the alien environment that Dave is being transported into. Not me, Dave, but the Dave in the movie. Um, back then, I had no idea what the black monolith represented because I was on drugs, see. But today, I realize that it represents incomprehensible alien technology, which uh, fits right in with Clark's third law. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Now, it's no accident that Kubrick co-wrote 2001 with the guy that formulated that law, Arthur C. Clarke. The monolith seems like magic, but it isn't. It's technology. We have no idea how the technology works, but we do know that it does, and we do know what it does. It um, causes a sudden leap forward in intelligence whenever it appears. Now, the first time it appears, that leap forward is when the uh, proto-humans, the monkey men, figure out how to use tools and weapons. And the second time, uh, when they discover the monolith on the moon, it causes the HAL 9000 computer to become not only self-aware, but deviously clever. Open the pod bay doors, HAL. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. The third time, when it appears in orbit around Jupiter, I had to puzzle about this a little bit, but I think it caused a sudden leap forward in alien intelligence this time, which allowed them to um, pick Dave's brain telepathically and construct a kind of metaverse in which Dave can live out the rest of his life. The fourth time, when the monolith appears in this metaverse, you know, after the light show, it triggers Dave's conversion from recently deceased human to newly born star child. And, and at that point, he returns to the vicinity of Earth. Now, exactly why, we don't know. It, it might be to conquer Earth for the aliens, or it might not. We just don't know. It depends on the alien motivations, and those are as inscrutable as their technology. So... I didn't set out to do this originally, but it seems like what I ended up doing is reviewing my three favorite movies about outer space. The top three I can think of at the moment, anyway. Uh, Wrath of Khan, the original Star Wars, and 2001. Uh, it's good stuff, all three of them. And with that, I'm going to send it back to you, PQ. Although that is an interesting um, trinity to be looking at. Uh, yeah, that was, I'm pretty sure, of the Star Trek films I've seen. Uh, the best out of all of them. Uh, I'm uh, presently, in fact, uh, just, just 
looking at some episodes of Voyager because I got the Paramount package on the internet recently and was flipping around there. And it's just, I see the Voyager as the lost in space of the Star Treks. It's a little goofier. It can be a little stupidy. And yeah, that's, and and I, I still don't like Janeway. So we'll leave that right where that sits because it's outer space and, uh, great i mean the bible if you figure in some science fiction in the mix that becomes really a lot more viable in certain ways um you never know uh what may be real and uh uh, (laughs) oh man if you haven't checked out dave's series sermons it's not what you would think like he says it's like your favorite stories but they're science fiction really yeah check them out um and outer space outer space oh and all of a sudden this song was going through my head and i was trying to make the connection and i realized that there was a song and you hardly hear it anymore but uh Let's have a little... I, I, I can make a little. It's instrumental. Oh, I almost feel like I need to be in a disco tech. But, uh, yeah, the, the guy... Uh, probably, I believe, the only guy who could be said to have been a member of both the Beatles and the Rolling Stones' Billy Preston. Yeah, uh, he figured, I guess, in that recent uh, Beatles thing that Netflix did, which I have Netflix, and I still have... I I just have this block, and I've got to force myself to watch that film. Between you and me, I would so much rather watch, like, Help or A Hard Day's Night than that that i saw the original let it be and it just it 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 really had an ill effect on how i perceived the beatles of course the edit of from the same material was a little more negative but uh can you even see the original let it be anymore i think it's been pretty thoroughly suppressed uh, did, did it even come out on VHS? I don't know. But, uh, yeah, that is... That's why you don't see it out there. It, it is one meh, depressing bit of filmmaking that has nothing to do with outer space. So, uh, yeah, if there's another digression for you as we keep kicking forward. And uh, between you and me, outer space... I mean, you go outside and you look up in the sky. How can you not kind of wonder a little? I mean, nothing specific. Why attach? I mean, that's how religion in certain... Oh, it's bigger than me. I don't know. But anyways, I am dying to know what Simon has to say about all this. Hello, Overnightscape Central. This is going to be short. Like blanket and you missed it short so I prepared uh, a fresh word salad for you Uh, I'll bust into that right now outer space lost 
in space. Pigs in space. You and Spacey. Kevin Spacey. Dick Tracy. You know, we live our lives at the bottom of an ocean, an ocean of air. Uh, and we're surrounded by pollen and spores and dust and bacteria and gas and sometimes liquids and solids. Um, and, you know, if you take us out of this ocean, uh, it's like taking a fish out of water. And you could say that we die because of uh, uh, a lack of oxygen. But isn't that just another way of saying we died because our matter got lonely? You see now, you don't have to do you know, a, a very long or thick thing to contribute to the overnight scape center. That that was I mean I'm I'm left wanting more, but it, it, he said what he had to say and it's good to have you back, Simon. That was refreshing and fun. And, uh, yeah, this, this just a, a light but profound moment. Uh, that, that was needed. Uh, just in general. Uh, this is, in real time, this is Thanksgiving Eve uh, 2022. So but with any luck, I am hoping that people are listening to this somewhere in between the Thanksgiving festivities, although that's me with the wishful thinking and giving this program far too much significance. But uh, I can dream. And I'm sure there is somebody there who is going to listen to this on Thanksgiving, if nothing else, in earbuds to escape from a football game, perhaps. Uh, and, I, and that alone makes my heart kind of get all warm. And, and not the kind of heartburn warm, but just that nice, cozy warm that you get after, um, you know, your hands have been cold and then they can move again, you know, like that. Um. Yeah, uh, moving right along as we talk about outer space. Speaking of uh, outer space, um, yeah, at one time before I realized all of the actual uh, preparation and knowledge required, I when you're a kid you want to be a fireman. I wanted I was the one who wanted to be the astronaut. Unrealistically, I mean I get kind of queasy on the simplest of roller coasters. Uh, I don't think there was any way on earth. Uh, even with training and practice, I was going to be selected. And my physical uh, being, I mean, I'm 4F from the military because no matter how much this... P people who see me, they oh, that PQ River, he must never eat. Oh, ho, ho, ho. And PQ River eats lots. PQ River simply... Just as there are people who look at food and gain 20 pounds, I can eat 20 pounds of food and look like I just looked at it. 
at the end of the whole thing. Uh, attempts at gaining weight proved to be futile and uh, cumbersome of just like devouring for no particular purpose. It just, yeah. Um, the outer space. Oh, it had at a deadly pace. It came from where? Yeah, that's uh, for the few or the many of you who don't get the Rocky Horror Picture Show uh, reference. That was a Rocky Horror Picture Show reference. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, but anyways, uh, let's keep this all rolling because we do have Doc Sleaze in the house. And I'm sure he will have some very interesting outer space observations. It came from outer space, teenagers from outer space, the space children, the brain from planet Arus or whatever, outer space in the 50s became the go-to place for various cinematic menaces to have originated from. Because the 50s saw a flood of cinematic monsters. But of course, after a while, I mean, originally they're inspired <coughs> by fears of nuclear radiation, the effects of nuclear radiation. So after, um, you know, after all, we, you know, there were atomic tests going on all the time. We'd seen bombs dropped on, nuclear bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and the devastating effect they'd had. The idea of radiation mutating creatures starts kicks or kicked off a wave of, of monster movies. But then you see there's a limit. There how many just how many monsters you can write off as having been mutated by radiation, you yeah, know, being created by radio there's only a limit to the number of radioactive tests going on, you know. Uh, <laughs> sometimes of course they didn't really they just awoke them. You know, like Godzilla was awakened from the death by nuclear tests. And, uh, so as time went on, you know, they started finding monsters everywhere, you know, like Godzilla. You know, they might have been slumbering in caves or, you know, beneath the ocean and were awakened, not necessarily by nuclear tests, by, by all manner of things could awaken them. <clears throat> Oil drilling, um, you know, or they're found frozen prehistoric monsters found frozen in the ice like the beast from 20,000 fathoms or that giant mantis um, you know but there's a limit there's an absolute limit to how many times how many monsters are the public going to believe the cinema going public are going to believe are secreted around the earth you know that we haven't noticed for millions of years and because you know you know, you tend to notice these things, you know, <clears throat> you know, it just, and, and as the world becomes smaller, you know, we explore more of it. That other old standby of, you know, prehistoric creatures, be they giant apes or dinosaurs found living on remote islands or remote plateaus, that went out the window completely. So where else could they come from? Well, the answer's there, outer space. Because it's a vast place out of space. Anything can happen out there. Anything can be living out there. 
<clears throat> obviously, um, the whole outer space thing for films was spurred anyway by the increasing you know, um, experiments with rocketry being kicked off with World War Two, of course, and, and the fact that the German V2 had shown that rockets were viable and could be, even be used as weapons of war. They were actually <coughs> remarkably ineffective, except um, for use at terrorising civilian populations, you know, which is what they did, you know. The Germans rained them down on London and late, and uh, was Amsterdam, wasn't it, is the other city has the distinction there. London and Amsterdam, and I think Tehran in the Iran-Iraq war, they, they sort of have the distinction of being the only cities to have suffered sustained um, rocket attacks. Until, um, of course, now, and, and the Ukraine war, where their cities are always being hit by Russian missiles. Yeah, They made a film about von Braun, of course, Werner von Braun, the father of, the, of German rocketry, um, called I Aim at the Stars. And as someone here in the UK said, he added added a subtitle, I Aim at the Stars, yes, but I missed and hit London instead. Uh, he has a complex legacy. He was a Nazi, fully paid up Nazi, who, um, <laughs> who later became the brains behind uh, the US peacetime space program. But there you go. I digress. Although not really, because that was the aim of the US space program, to put men into outer space in competition with the, with the Soviets. And it worked. But the acceleration of these programs, the eventual launching first of, of Sputnik and, and then the US um, Explorer satellites, <clears throat> followed by Yuri Gagarin orbiting the Earth, followed by the Mer American Mercury program. <coughs> yeah, Alan Shepard and John Glenn and whatever. Helped fuel an interest in outer space, which is reflected in cinema and popular culture. Or rather, yeah, in mainstream popular culture. The truth is outer space has always been a fascinating topic um, in science fiction, which existed mainly in pulp magazines up to this point. And that was a key thing. First of all, the, um, the, the, you know, the advent of the bomb and V2 rockets. It was an eye opener for a lot of people who'd always dismissed the pot science fiction pulp magazines as, as being childish fantasies when suddenly Two of their main staples, the weapon of mass destruction and the rocket, which could become a spaceship, suddenly became reality. And that helped spur the popularity in the subject as well post-war. But I say with the space programs of the Soviet Union and the United States all coalesced and hit the mainstream, which meant that... Um, Whereas science fiction to like outer space adventures had been for kids, even on the screen, you know, um, there was a plethora of, of early US TV series, you know, Tom Corbett, Space Cadet, uh, Flash Gordon, uh, there's a Flash Gordon TV series and so on, which there were lots of them. Um, 
Rocky, whatever his name was, Space Ranger. I forget. But they were mainly aimed at kids. But then B-movies picked it up. And, and not just B-movies, they increasingly became A-movies. Started featuring menaces from outer space. So War of the Worlds in 1953 was very much an A-picture shot in, shot in colour. And... Uh, <coughs> <coughs> excuse me. Aimed to be a serious picture. And that was the archetypal outer space menace. Martians. But it became this topic because it became this place that they could explain these monsters. They're coming to Earth, these alien creatures. Monsters, aliens, teenagers from outer space. They who, who had monsters as well. The alien teenagers brought with them these monsters that um, looked a lot like photographically enlarged crayfish. You know. <laughs> Badly badly superimposed <laughs> onto other scenes. But yeah, it becomes the explanation, because otherwise how do you explain the presence of these things? Why has no one noticed them before? I mean, I was watching the other, I re-watching, I've seen it before. First time in many years, I rewatched The Giant Claw, from, must be what, about 57, 1957? When huge, gigantic, battleship-sized bird suddenly appears and starts attacking first of all aircraft and then cities and whatever and of course the only way they can explain this is it's flown in from outer space <laughs> because that's the that's the thing as people keep quiet because it tries to play into the ufo flying saucer craze at the same time it is first of all being identified as an unidentified flying object and everybody says the pilot who first sees it, you must be crazy, Mac. You know, you loosen your marbles, as they always say to people in these films. And uh, because it didn't show up on the radar. But then more and more aircraft get taken down and more people see it. Because obviously a bird that big couldn't have been hiding anywhere on Earth. <laughs> Suddenly it's there in the skies. And the reason it doesn't show up on radar because it has an antimatter force field around it, which it produces naturally. Yeah. Anyway, this bird, what it implies, the script, it never goes into it in great. <laughs> what it implies is this bird, there are species that somehow fly between worlds. I mean, how do they fly when there's no atmosphere? Uh, but somehow they fly between worlds and, and to make nests on them. And this is what this one's here on Earth to do is to to make a net, giant nest and lay its giant eggs, and then they will infest the earth, these creatures, and lay it to waste. We assume it must have been in either, either you know, it, it practices parthenogenesis and yeah, can produce egg, fertilize eggs, you know, without, um, without the intervention of a bird of the opposite sex or it mated somewhere in the depths of space or on another I, we don't know anyway the usual band of brave scientists and that pilot labeled as crazy he also happens to be a, a, a an electronics engineer um luckily of course come up with a with the with the requisite ray gun that can neutralize the um the force field around it and allow the uh the Air Force to 
to destroy it with rockets. Interesting, to digress again slightly with, with the giant claw. Funnily enough, of, of, with regard to films of that era, of this sort, these sort of science fiction monster films, the bits in between appearances by the, um, the bird itself are actually above average in terms of this. There's a great deal more scientific literacy in them, like the discussions of antimatter and whatever. Um, you know, when that's the engineer pointing out that you know, if the bird itself is composed of antimatter, then it would be immediately neutralized. Yeah, you know, it would neutralize it, so it'd be completely destroyed as soon as it came in contact with matter on Earth. But of course, that's what it's just this force, this field it projects around itself, which has the properties of antimatter. And can destroy missiles and bullets fired at it. So it's surprisingly reasonably literate for that kind of scientific literate for that kind of film and not that badly written or indeed those things aren't that badly directed although because it's directed by Fred F. Sears who sort of is a an old hack at directing B-movies <laughs> but um, it's the appearances of the bird which let it down because apparently the story goes that I think Sam Katzman produced it a well-known cheapskate, and he um, he originally approached Ray Harryhausen to you know to to um, create the bird and the special effects using stop-motion animation because Harryhausen had, had just had a string of hit pictures, um, you know, Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms, um, uh, it came from beneath the sea. See, that's another place they hide those monsters, giant octopus. Um, attacks the Golden Gate Bridge and um, Earth versus the Flying Saucers um, probably more relevant and which also I believe was directed by Fred F. Sears but there you go so anyway Harry House was approached and he gave them a quote for what it would cost based on the costs on those earlier pictures of animating various menaces and apparently you know um, it nearly gave Sam Katzman a heart attack <laughs> He saw this so instead. Instead, he sent out he, he 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 tracked it out the special effects work to a Mexican studio, uh, <laughs> which resulted in this grotesque puppet being used <laughs> to represent the giant bird, and it truly is grotesque. It's just cartoonish, like its its head and face are incredibly cartoonish. And rather than being dear, people scream as they see its face. In fact, the audience just laugh. Yeah, it's like something out of a Warner Brothers cartoon. But maybe that's what giant birds look like in space. <laughs> Who knows? But yeah, um, as I say, outer space, because of its infinite vastness and the fact we, you know, it's particularly back in the 50s, a complete lack of knowledge of, of the depths of outer space. We barely knew what was going on in the solar <coughs> in the rest of the solar system, for God's sake, at that point. Um, certainly the outer planets, we were still pretty vague on. Um, no probes that visited them. All our observations had to be based upon what could be seen through the most powerful telescopes available. So outer space, just as 
darkest Africa had been before, or the depths of the ocean had been before, became this great, or even the South American jungles became this great unknown from which could emerge anything. It could be hiding any, concealing anything. You know, the idea of all these invaders from outer space was no different than the idea in pulp stories and movies of you know lost civilizations being found in in, in the depths of the jungle, be it African jungle or South American jungles, or living at the bottom of the Atlantis, surviving living at the bottom of the sea. You know. Undersea, I mean, there's a serial undersea kingdom that went into all that, <coughs> or even underground, you know, Liberia type lost civilizations. I mean, there's a Gene Autry um, serial involving that. I can't remember the title now. Anyway, um, so it's really just a, a modernization of an already established and popular idea, an idea that had been established in, in the popular consciousness already. Because all those ancient civilizations, where they be beneath the earth, beneath the ocean, in the jungle or whatever, they were presented as being just as alien as all those aliens who came to earth. Those jungles, oceans, whatever, they also hid monsters every bit as grotesque as that giant bird from outer space. Even the Godzilla movies eventually gave up on trying to, you know, on, on... Keep trying to uh, explain its monsters away by saying that they, um, you know, they they've been reawakened by nuclear tests or been hidden in, trapped in rock and mines like Rodan and frozen in the ice, um, and instead, um, or produced by un, uh, ancient un, undersea kingdoms, and instead, instead, eventually, the introduced. Uh, King Ghidorah, the three-headed monster who comes from outer space. And increasingly in the Toho films, <clears throat> you had aliens turning up from outer space because it was the only way they could retain any degree of credibility in explaining these things for an ever more informed and sophisticated audience. Because that's the other thing. At the same time as we started exploring space that came to the public consciousness, uh, mass media also started to permeate our lives more. The rise of television news and radio news took all, you know narrative of these events into people's homes, into their living rooms, and people gradually became more informed about it. It wasn't science fiction or it's rocketry and outer space. It's science fact that the science fiction was merely reflecting already established fact and extrapolating from it. So it becomes more acceptable. But audiences become more sophisticated over time and unwilling to accept uh, <laughs> some of the portrayals of outer space um, that had characterised early attempts uh, to 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 utilize outer space subjects on film. Because as well as monsters coming 
and aliens invading the Earth from outer space. Increasingly, films started depicting man going out into outer space and encountering aliens and monsters. <laughs> but early depictions of outer space and space travel on film, particularly in the 1940s, fascinate me because they demonstrate, I mean, it partly is dictated by budgetary concerns, but their idea of what was required for space travel and indeed what audiences would accept. They were, they were also playing upon the relative ignorance of, audience, of general audiences at the time. Um, was way wide of the mark. Recently, I saw an episode of uh, Radar Men from the Moon, one of the uh, latter-day Republic series, made in the early 50s. It, um, I think it actually introduced the character of Commando Cody, also the TV series later. Here he's played by George Wallace. Uh, now, it's, it's interesting in its depiction of space travel because Commando Cody and his buddies blast off to the moon in their rocket ship, which interestingly um, doesn't take off or vertically or land vertically. It takes off and lands horizontally like a, an aircraft, but it doesn't have wings. It just has rockets at the back. Uh, it's a traditional rocket ship in the, in the Flash Gordon mode. But what was really fascinating is the fact they travel into outer space into the moon wearing like ordinary street clothes. You know, those are the days when you could like, you know, fly a spaceship wearing a trilby, you know, a flannel suit and a trilby. That's all you needed to go into space. <laughs> and I find it fascinating when the spaceship is depicted as taking off like that and landing like that, despite the fact that was, you know, the, the, the then current knowledge of rocketry would have been from V2s, which always took off uh, vertically. Well, they sort of landed vertically as well, but they came down nose first and blew bloody great holes in London. But um, equally, equally, is that depiction of just wearing normal street clothes in space. The idea, uh, it's interesting, they don't depict them wearing any kind of pressure suit, for instance. Despite, again, the experience of World War II, when increasingly aircraft flew increasingly high altitudes and increasingly um, they had to have pressurized cockpits and often increasingly pilots began to wear pressure suits um, in order to survive at those altitudes. And indeed, by 1951, when, when um, Radar Men from the Moon was made, I mean, already there was experimentation with rocket planes like, I mean, perhaps that did inspire the, to be fair, the, the rocket ship, rocket planes like the Bell X-1 and so on, where again, you know, the increasingly pilots had to wear pressurized suits in order to fly them, the, the, the incredible, at the time we considered incredible 
altitudes. In fact, it was the verge of outer space they were flying them to. They only just stayed within the atmosphere. And equally, there's no real depiction of the G-forces involved, although, again, that was known from the rocket plane experiments. Um, you know, the, you know, the G-forces that um, pilots experienced. And it's fascinating. It really is. And it, of course, it gets equally fascinating when, when of course, Commando Cody and his pals get to the moon and, and find it, of course, A, it has an atmosphere. B, it has normal Earth gravity. C, it looks remarkably like that bit of California where Republic used to shoot its westerns. And C, the moon people live on the surface and they all dress in like vaguely medieval looking gear, which was probably left over from another uh, Republic serial. <laughs> because they were at that point, serials, a particular Republic, they used to construct their serials around as much stock footage and existing costumes as they could. In fact, people would wear costumes to match up with the stock footage, which is why Commando Cody he has a rocket pack. And again, to use the rocket pack, he just wears a leather jacket for safety over his, <laughs> over his street clothes. Yeah. Yeah. Never mind his trousers might get back, his trousers might get scorched by the, the back blast of the rocket pack. Uh, and he does wear a helmet, to be fair with a full face visor, which is there simply to disguise the fact that all of the rocket suit, rocket pack footage used in that film was originally shot for a serial called King of the Rocket Men with Tristram Coffin, the wonderfully named Tristram Coffin, who played um, the titular King of the Rocket Men. His surname was King, and he was a Rocket Man. And um, they reused that footage in several different serials. Zombies of the Stratosphere. I mean, it was Jet Holdren wore the jetpack, but the visor ensured that you didn't see who the actual actor was. And in fact, the reality was the stunt man. It was who had originally performed. It was probably Dave Sharp. Was a stunt man who used to do flying stunt. Those kinds of flying stunts for for a public back in those days. Certainly done the flying sequences for Captain Marvel, I remember that. <clears throat> That's one of his specialisms. But yeah. <laughs> this depiction of outer space is, you know, let's not worry about the fact space is a vacuum. Let's not worry about, you know, G-forces. Let's not worry about the fact that the moon has no atmosphere. Yeah. <laughs> Because, one, as I say, they, they, they relied upon the, rel the relative ignorance then of general audiences. Because obviously they didn't have the resources to depict this realistically. Even if the writers had known, even if they had cared, they didn't have the resources. Serials were the cheapest of all, just about the cheapest of all, all products. Maybe two reader shorts might, might have been, or one reader shorts might have been cheaper to make. But serials were the cheapest of all productions to make. They had tiny budgets, say reused resources over and over again. Even Republic's, and Republic made the best serials. <coughs> Actually excellent special effects and miniatures work. But even they were made on an absolute shoestring. So they didn't have the resources and they just relied upon this that people didn't 
didn't know, didn't care. But it didn't take long for that situation to change, as I say, thanks to mass media, increased focus upon the real space programs. And as the 50s progressed, you got more realistic by the knowledge of the times depictions of space travel and of outer space. I mean, because let's face it, at the end of the day, Radar Men from the Moon was really just a standard Republic actions, two-fisted action serial. Um, and the science fiction trappings and angle were there simply because at the time there was an interest in that from pulp magazines, from, as they say, all the things people had seen, advances in technology and so on being reported on. So they just put that in there as trimmings to, and, it, and of course with the, with the flying man, with the rocket man made him a, a superhero and it was cheaper than paying any comic strip, any comics company the rights for a superhero character, you know, uh, Republic renowned for that. And uh, yeah, but it's interesting, during the 50s you, you, and into the early 60s, you, you got these more realistic depictions increasingly. Because the other thing they reflected were, were advances in special effects. Movie special effects allowed it. Um, you, know, you look at film, I mean, uh, although they're still in, in plot terms pitched as melodramas, you like Riders to the Stars. Conquest of Space is what I, I vividly remember because I saw part of it again recently. Uh, and the, because. Um, That was an attempt to produce a very realistic looking film set in space film, outer space film set in the, the near future, depicting a mission to Mars. And it still looks good because it's a Chesley Bonestell provided a lot of the, you know, a lot of the look was based upon Chesley Bonestell's paintings of, of planetary surfaces and it took a lot of this look of the spaceships from pulp magazines and, and so on. And it had, you know, scientific consultants and everything. And yeah, it's depiction, you know, it's quite really, they wear pressure suits, space is a vacuum. Um, they experience G-forces, but it still presents all as a melodrama. Um, you know, you have to wonder in this future world about their selection processes for the astronauts considering the mission is led by this colonel who turns out to be some kind of religious nut who um, <laughs> decides that man shouldn't be invading the heavens and you know that's the center of the conflict of the film between him and his son because yeah yeah we'll send a father and a son on a mission we have a history of rivalry and yeah it's um and that's where it disappoints but yeah but then there were other outer space movies as well, which 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 did hit the heights, of course, most famously Forbidden Planet from 1956, <coughs> which, again, I saw that again recently. I've been re-watching a lot of old science fiction movies. It's... has still, you watch it now, and its script is remarkably literate and intelligent. And it is such a well-made film for its day. Its depiction of what was in the sort of the far future is fascinating. 
um, with the technologies involved, but they're all extrapolated you know, from modern day technologies. And, you know, it's, it's surprisingly subtle and it, and it helps. Yeah, have water pigeon with this marvellous voice sort of, yeah. <laughs> and giving his, that sort of performance, the actors of his generation, leading actors of generation, a slightly stagey performance. It sounds often as if he's addressing the back row of the theatre. Adds weight to it. Robbie the Robot, we all remember. And uh, that is fascinating. That is actually, though, the closest thing you'll find on screen in a depiction is an outer space movie to something you would have read in the science fiction pulp magazines of the time. Um, in terms of sophistication, um, attempts to sort of base its science upon reasonable extrapolations of modern, of you know, current science, and saying its depictions of outer space and so on. It's yeah, quite fascinating. Um, and there's also about the same time, there's another great favourite of mine, This Island Earth, which again actually was taken from a pulp magazine, a, a novel originally serialised in the pulp magazines. And it is far pulpier than Forbidden Planet, but it's tremendous fun. <clears throat> and again, it's reasonably intelligent in the way it's written. And it tries to, to make the science, even the alien science in it, critical. Because that's one which, which mixes the two sides of the then cinematic outer space story. In that, we have aliens who've come to Earth because they're trying to... Um, harness the scientific knowledge of earth science scientific geniuses in order to save their own world and then it goes into outer space when some of the a couple of the scientists found them whisked away to the aliens planet metaluna which is in the middle of a war well it's in the, not in the it's in the final stages of a war with a rival race of aliens who are sort of guiding comets into the into Metaluda in order to destroy it. Again, the depictions of outer space are quite fascinating. And it mixes in the UFO flying saucer craze of the time with the alien spaceship is a looks like a fairly traditional flying saucer. <coughs> it doesn't have robots but it does have mutants, as the Metaluna mutant. You know, it's it's is a very, in its own way, um, a very impressive film. It's still very enjoyable. And it tries to be, it tries to, to present a reasonably serious, straight-faced um, take on pulp science fiction. So it still holds up well, actually, you know. If you see it in the context, context of the era when it was made, it's still a very enjoyable film. But yeah, yeah. Hmm. So I suppose there you have it, really. Um, some rambling thoughts on outer space and its depiction in popular culture, specifically films of, uh, you know, B-movies and whatever, of, of the um, 40s and 50s. Um It is interesting. I mean, arguably, the outer space picture came of age eventually 
with Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, with its attempt at absolute realism and again all the technologies you see the space technologies are a reasonable extrapolation of what was happening then in 1968 when it was made <coughs> sorry excuse me you must excuse this <clears throat> i don't know why i'm coughing like that you know but yeah that was probably when the science fiction film came of age and depictions of space on screen, out of space on screen, finally became truly realistic. And as such as time has gone on, the depiction of such things is no longer a novelty enough in itself to sell a film. You know, you say things like Conquest, where you have a sort of standard melodramatic plot driving you know driving along all, all these special effects which were really the special effects were the reason what drew people into the film to see the film you know this realistic space spaceships etc etc rockets going to mars and that that's what brought people in to see it and the storyline was secondary to that whereas after 2001 increasingly it was the other way around and because space, outer space exploration by then was commonplace, the year after 2001 was released, men met, landed on the moon. Apollo 11 landed, you know, mission landed on the moon. It's become more commonplace now, space travel. Satellites are launched da daily nowadays. So it's the other way round now in films that depict outer space. It's generally, it has to have a story. <laughs> the interest and attracts in the the audience um, and the depictions of space we expect them to be realistic still but they're st they they no longer have that novelty value um, although there's some films that seem to try and play on that I've watched Ad Astra the Brad Pitt film recently which seems to um, want to sell itself on its what it thinks is a scrupulously realistic depiction of space travel in the relatively near future. But unfortunately, it isn't, there, there are various problems the way it depicts <laughs> space travel that uh, you know, it gets several things wrong. The science is a bit wrong about the way space spaceships accelerate and so rockets accelerate and so i won't go into the deal bore you with that you can look it up actually on the imdb um entry for that film there's a little section on it that goes through all the problems with the way it depicts space travel and rocket the science of it um so i won't bore you by detailing it here um it was in i've read that so it was in because they I realised, I mean, I'd spotted some of it but the, after I'd watched the film, but the, there's quite a lot I hadn't spotted. In respect, respect, I thought, yeah, they're right there. They got that wrong. But anyway, there you go. As I said, let's wrap this up now. I've rambled on too long. Um, yeah, those are my thoughts on outer space. And so now we'll say back to you, PQ, who's doubtless floating on his Quakerversal satellite in the depths of outer space.
Oh, yes, this satellite is just turning end over end out in the desert of space. Oh, yes, it's quite arid and extra dry, in fact. And about one out of ten of you are old enough to get that terrible reference, as it were. Oh, boy. Uh, Werner von Braun. Oh, yes. Oh, man. We just... We picked and chose who we stuck to Nuremberg and executed and who we put in the labs here and made into sort of a hero. The more I read about Von Braun, I mean, I I hope they kept him a real close eye on that fellow. I nowadays, I think he would, no matter what science he might have known, he would be officially canceled. And uh, speaking of debunking stuff, as you were doing there was a guy there is a guy i think his name is thunderfoot thunder something on youtube and that's his thing he deep uh, oh he did a wonderful thing deep remember when they were going to turn all the highways into solar highways and they built a couple of test ones he took a look at the results of those tests and uh, yeah uh, you will note that nobody is building solar streets it was one of the least thought-out ideas among many alternate energy, uh, poorly thought-out ideas in all those movies. I mean, these, this is the stuff I grew up on. This was outer space. Yeah, people sitting in kitchen chairs with a desk in front of them with some lights on it, and they're going to space. Oh, man. Yeah, G-Force? Oh, heck no. Uh, I'm the, uh, Weightlessness, any of that. Uh, we didn't have the special effects for it, so it just miraculously was negated by the wonders of technology, convenience, and coincidence. This is why, uh, in general, I have so much more of a taste for old science fiction that creaks and does not pay too much attention to the limitations that are uh, scientific discoveries and developments over the last, say, 60 years have altered. Uh, I mean, th- th- this, I, th- nobody mentioned it, so uh, this, this was probably P.Q. Rivers' first real uh, science fiction thing that uh, I ever encountered. Here, check this out. And now stand by for adventure. Three, two, one. In the exciting story of... The Bat and the Bottle. Yeah, there's this Colonel Bleep guy. Colonel Bleep and the High Command review the grim reports once more. Four flying saucers from Venus lost in collision with a giant space bird. Spacebergs. Martian cruisers. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I'm not sure if these are copyrighted or not. They're all over the internet. But if you've never seen or heard of Colonel Bleep and you have a taste for cheesy retro 
sci-fi. I mean, I think John Krishfalusi, who did uh, Ren and Stimpy, and he's been canceled for other... That Outer Space episode from the first season is just so great. But uh, John Krishfalusi, no doubt, watched a lot of Colonel Bleep growing up because the the animation style, the whole thing, oh, it's so good. And, uh, yeah, if we're going to talk about Outer Space... I cannot leave Colonel Bleep out, so I'm glad that I remembered to bring that up. And and we've got Frank Edward Nora yet, and after that I'm going to tell you how you can participate in the next Overnightscape Central. You can even do a follow-up if you're thinking, of, oh, wow, I should have done this. There's outer space stuff and everything. This is it. You can do a follow-up and maybe even talk about uh, whatever next week's subject is, which I will tell you soon enough. But uh, let us hand the floor over to Frank Edward Knorr, because I am sure he has important stuff to add to the mix. You know, it's interesting. On one of my recent visits to the Barnes & Noble down the street in Clifton, New Jersey, I wound up buying a retro fan magazine, a magazine for... uh, fans of uh, 60s and 70s pop culture maybe a little 80s thrown in but they had a big article on color forms and uh they talked about how color forms released a a series of um action figures back in the, i think it was the 60s called outer spacemen and they're very distinctive characters they weren't based on anything else there was like the man from venus the man from jupiter i think one of them was like a nautilus shell kind of thing and I never had them. I think they were a bit before my time. I think I was a few years too young to have gotten Outer Space Men. And apparently when Star Wars came out in 77, they reissued, not the toys, but the actual, um, they made some color forms of Outer Space Men and then some puzzles and things. And what's interesting, I know I was, I know there's like some, you know, there's those toy companies, the newer ones that kind of, they're almost like little art figures that are based on previous things. I know there was a whole series based on the Outer Space Men but with different names. So the other day, I actually went to lunch with my coworkers, uh, and uh, down at this place, Bar Verde on Second Avenue in New York City. And even though I was I was on vacation last week, I went in for the uh, for the lunch. Then I had to go back to the office because there was a sample sale there. So I, my plan was, I'm like, oh wow, I'm real near. St. Mark's and like Toy Tokyo, right? The, the place that sells all these figurines and toys and things. It's still there. It's amazing that it's still there. And then I was going to go to the bookstore and everything, but I ran out of time. So me and my coworkers, we actually all went to Toy Tokyo and they had some outer spacemen there, but we couldn't figure out if they were originals or they were those reproduction ones. It was very hard to figure out. But, you know, the outer spacemen, this is one of many toys, outer space, the realm uh in so much fiction science fiction right it it, it opened up a whole new universe of storytelling right now of course i think a lot of people in terms of the storytelling it sort of felt like the olden days when they would tell stories of the sailing ships on the seas of the world and going on adventures overseas right you could then extend that now Instead of a sailing ship, it's a spaceship. And instead of going to the other shores and other continents, you're going to other planets and planetoids and things, right? And I think that 
I know I must have researched this. You know, when did this outer space fiction or you know space opera is one of the one of the subgenres of that? When did it all start? Um, clearly, if we think back, Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers. That's the 1930s, I think. Right. I'm not looking this up on the internet. I'm just doing this from. Uh, do, I, do I not even have my phone? No, I don't have my phone. I'm gonna have to do this all. No, I do have my phone. Okay, but I'm not gonna look anything up. I'm gonna do this all. Whatever. Maybe we'll look something up. Anyway, uh, yeah. So at least by, you know, was it 80 or 90 years ago? Um, the science fiction, not just science fiction. Science fiction doesn't necessarily have to take place in space, but outer space science fiction starts to really take hold and the idea of spaceships which i think they used to call them more like rocket ships right really starts to take hold as um you know i think i as i said i think it's a, a direct pickup of ocean going vessels water vessels into spaceships and there's just something you know i think everyone dreams of traveling to other places and finding new opportunities and this vision of outer space is really, really wild and really cool. And not only that, it actually, this is actually is something that is commonly held to be possible. Like you, you yourself could go to space once they fix up the technology a bit. Uh, so it's not just science fiction. It could be science fact. And then we saw the space race, right, starting in the 1950s with Sputnik, right? And then uh, <clears throat> the Russians got a man in space first. They also got a dog in space. I think that dog like died in space. But anyway, then they sent some chimpanzees up in space. I don't think any of these animals actually survived. <coughs> I don't know. But then, <coughs> right, the space race very quickly accelerated until 1969 when the U.S. landed a man on the moon. And uh, the few missions after that, that was 11. It went up to 17. Of course, 13 didn't make it. All the rest made it after that. So after 72, space, what happened? What happened? Right? Uh, no human after that. Again, we're we're talking about the commonly held consensus view. Um, has left low Earth orbit since then, right? Literally since Apollo 17, no human being has left low Earth orbit. We're talking Skylab, right? The space shuttles, the International Space Station, also all this, all that stuff. Low Earth orbit, a few hundred miles up in the sky. Now, now you know, of course, I'm into all the conspiracy theories, and we'll get to that. Uh, but um, it, I find it, as I'm super fascinated by this topic. I, I was such a huge space junkie when I was a kid. Loved everything about sp outer space. When I talk to people about this topic they generally don't have a good knowledge of it. They're like, oh, really? The Chinese never went to the moon or the Russians never went to the moon? Like, people think the Russians landed on the moon, the Chinese landed on the moon. People I'm talking about. Obviously, at least China landed a probe on the moon. I don't know if Russia landed a probe on the moon, but... Right? In terms of the familiarity just with the mainstream narrative, most people aren't even familiar with it, and they don't know. And most people don't care about this topic either. I remember talking about how you know, the theory that the Apollo moon missions were faked with these Russian kids back, you know, around 2000. And they're like, wait, what? People actually care about this? Who cares if they went or not? They were just so, like, dismissive of the entire topic. 
I think it's important. Maybe a lot of people don't think it's important. Um, but yeah, so as a kid, I just was drawn to everything from outer space. I remember there was some restaurant we went to and they had like this toy chest and every kid could choose one toy out of it if your parents went to um, <clears throat> a dinner there. And I got this, there was a thing that, I've talked about these before, uh, a type of object that has kind of fallen by the wayside. It's a cardboard sleeve and then a cardboard uh, piece of, a, a, like a printed piece of cardboard that you slide inside. And the outer piece has little uh, cutouts. So as you slide it through, you're getting different combinations of information, right? And I know, I think I touched on this topic a few years ago on the Overnightscape, but, right? There were so many of those as toys or as actual tools, as reference tools, right? Some of them were circular and you would, you know, there'd be a, a circle of cardboard underneath another piece of cardboard that had all cutouts. And as you circled it, different pieces of information would show through those windows, right? What, what is that called? I know I struggled to find the name of that concept. But anyway, it was a little, I forget what they called it, sliding reference to the solar system. And I just remember... And I think it, it looked like it was actually from like the, the mid to late 50s, perhaps. And I just loved that thing because you would slide it up and, and you would see information on each planet, you know, like Mars. And then it would say Mars is X miles from the Earth. Mars is its diameter, the length of the year, the length of the day. Right. So into that. I remember uh, I think I even had like a little book about Skylab. Right. Skylab was the, the space station. In the mid-70s, that everyone seems to have forgotten it. They're like, oh my god, they made the International Space Station. Isn't it amazing? Well, don't you remember Skylab? And then Skylab eventually fell to the Earth, and everyone was afraid it was going to fall on them like in the late 80s or early 90s. <laughs> but it sort of seems like with... Listen, there's a lot of conspiracy theories about space. And a lot of them stem from what's going on with... NASA and the United States Space Agency and other space agencies. For example, just the other day, they finally launched Artemis 1, the first in a series of missions to try to get people back on the moon, right? And uh, over f like 53 years later, uh, well, since the landing, it's not since the first Apollo mission, but anyway, you get the idea. They're still using the same exact, a big rocket and a capsule. I mean, it's unbelievable considering how much every other aspect of technology has increased that uh, this going to the moon is the same exact thing. And they're acting like it's this great scientific achievement. Oh, my God, we're going. We did it 53 years ago. 53 years ago. It makes no sense that they have to reinvent this. They had the technology back then. It's absolutely ridiculous. So it's shenanigans like this that throw a lot of stuff into question, right? <clears throat> the original Apollo moon missions, to touch on that, um, you know, I've done a mass amount of research. And listen, I am very cautious about approaching any topic like this that are commonly called conspiracy theories, but it's probably better not to call them that. I know that was a name created to discredit these type of ideas that the mainstream narrative may not be completely accurate. 
And I want to say that I am very aware that uh, developing belief in things without proof is a great tendency and it's a very strong tendency in human beings and I can see it in myself. So I always try to take a step back and really re-examine things and try not to embrace any particular theory. Right. So in approaching the Apollo moon missions, which is a central part of our history of outer space, right, um, I, I, I want to approach it with caution and consideration and never coming to any a belief in it. So I just want to say that we understand the mainstream narrative that the United States developed this uh, sort of sort of in a very fast-paced, created this Apollo program, and eventually in 1969 sent uh, two men to the surface of the moon, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong, and then a bunch of others over the next few years. Michael Collins had to stay in the spaceship. He didn't get to go to the moon. Um, so... The uh, idea that this whole project was a fake, a, a hoax, became a very pervasive um, theme, even early on, right? That people thought that it was faked. So when my big research of it, which, I mean, I've been researching it for a long time, but is using the publicly available movies and, you know, motion videos mo that, that were filmed, they, they filmed motion pictures they took, or was it video? I think both. I think it was video. And uh, the photographs and all other aspects of the mission, right? <clears throat> now, a lot of people simply come to the conclusion that it was a fake. It was filmed in a soundstage, etc. Um, you know, to me, with the available evidence that I would strongly consider that what they've released to the public and presented to the public, I do think those images were um, not taken on the moon when they say they were on the moon. That doesn't mean the mission was fake, right? It just means that there was a... Uh, there was some reason not to show the real mission, right? So there's, there's... I've gone over this before, but there's levels of the Apollo hoax concept, right? Right. The first level is that it's completely accurate. Right. So everything they told the public is 100 percent true. Right. And that's what most people believe. Right. But I would say the available evidence, the photographic and other things, so many things would point to I would tend to think that's not very likely that at that level that is true. So the next level is that. Right. Kennedy, of course, gave that speech. We will reach the moon by the end of the decade. Send a man to the moon and return him safely to Earth. Right? Uh, that the Cold War was on. The world was watching. And they there was... So, again, this is level two, okay? There was a sincere scientific and industrial, whatever, attempt to create a moon mission. But during the process, they realized that they were decades away from the actual technology of being able to send a man to the moon and bring them back safely. So a decision was made. And again, this is my this is just my theory. Of, uh, this is just conjecture on level two. A, a decision was made. How do we make this mission work? The answer was it, it can't happen in maybe 30 or 40 years. It might be possible. 
that's not acceptable. What's another option? Well, we can, you know, we can. Uh... All right. So this is level. Sorry. <laughs> well, we can go forward with the with we can go forward with this plan. But we can, there's only like a 25% chance that like we actually developed the spaceship. We actually developed everything. But the chance these guys are going to get to the moon, land, and be alive on the moon, and then take off of the moon and come back to Earth, the chance, it's like 10% chance, the 90% chance they'll die during the mission, right? So that's, this is level two. I forgot. Uh, the other one is level three. <laughs> this gets kind of complicated. So the guy's like, listen, so you t- you're saying this, this mission might be a success, but more, most likely the astronauts will die on the mission. Yes. Okay. Let's go ahead as planned, but we can't have the eyes of the world seeing our astronauts dying in space. So we're doing the mission. It's 100% valid, but in order to guarantee the success of the mission, we will create a parallel mission where everything is under controlled conditions. We will film it on a sound stage. We will are the astronauts that we choose to say that went on the mission, Buzz and 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 uh, and and Neil and and Michael, they will stay on Earth safe. There will be three nameless astronauts that will go on the real mission, and who knows? Maybe they'll actually come back. If they survive it, then we'll learn so much, and then the next one we can maybe make it safer. So. This is level two. They, this, again, it's completely valid. The rocket takes off. There are three astronauts in there, but Neil, Buzz, and Michael are on, safely on Earth and film everything on a soundstage, yada, yada, right? And who knows what happened to the original astronauts? That's level two. To me, level two feels, does not feel that unlikely. It feels like, the nature of the mission was so new, so advanced, so dangerous, and the the need for success was so great that this faking of the actual uh, footage and and you know the astronauts to me that's completely within the realm of possibility, right? It seems like something they would do. <clears throat> Level three is. Um, they start the project and then they realize, like, there's just no way we can do this. Let's not even try to send someone and then they just fake it without even trying, right? But they're saying, you know, that the technology is decades away, yada, yada. Level four is that <coughs> um, that's where we're getting to this stranger territory. It's where <coughs> those in the know they know that uh, space doesn't really exist. Outer space is not real. And there is no way to send anyone to the moon because the moon doesn't exist in the way we think it does. And um, this entire space uh, space travel thing is in service to another um, plan, which we'll get to. And so it's a complete hoax from the beginning to the end. Obviously, they have a, a rocket that gets launched, but it it gets launched and then it just falls into the ocean. There's no attempt to go to space because they know space doesn't exist. And uh, so it's all of it is completely fake from the beginning to the end because there is there is no moon in the sense that we, you know, that are saying. Right. So is that all the levels? <laughs> What's the next level? We're all living in a computer simulation, so it doesn't matter. That's the final level. OK. 
So who cares? They really went to the moon in the computer simulation. But why, but why do the pictures look so suspect? I don't know. So, anyway, so that's like the range of, of views on that issue. And, and I don't know. I, if I had to guess, um, I think that level three where they were just nowhere near in the 60s um, putting on a, an actual mission, though the technology would be you know, it would take decades to develop it. That's the one I think is probably, if you want to, for me, which one would I assign the most weight, the most probability? It's probably that one where they started the project and they quickly realized that it's way beyond the scope of what they had available to them at the time and um, decided to fake it. And, you know, they made a rocket that you could launch, but then it just fell into the ocean and there was no one on it. I think that one to me, Feels like if I had to assign percentages, I'd say that one seems like the most likely one. <clears throat> but ultimately, I don't know. And uh, I, all I can do is have my own personal viewpoint of the weight I would give each of those scenarios, right? So I don't believe any of the scenario so that my goal is not to believe anything but to but to view a range of possible answers to what is ultimately a mystery and i and i just on a personal level i can give each of those weight in terms of how much percent chance i think it's true i mean as far as like level one the complete narrative that you know the public narrative Yes, that could be true. I would probably give it like really low chance of being true. I would say, in my estimation, maybe one percent chance that that's true. You, know? you don't have to believe. You can you you can view something and you can. It's a mystery, right? And you can view you, you can add weight to stuff. Now I know a lot of people listening want no part of any of this conspiracy stuff. They're one hundred percent convinced all the mainstream stuff is true, and that's fine. You know, and I think that it makes it easier to live your life that way. And I'm aware that there's a lot of peddling of disinformation and trying to get people to say things like I'm saying. And I'm completely aware of that. But even in light of that, this particular situation, uh, I think, bears further scrutiny. Oh, I'm one for conspiracy theories, but we've been through this before. Uh, it's it, to be, if indeed... The whole, either way, if it was a half done or a full done, Russia and China, especially Russia, because we're in the middle of a space race that was very competitive and important to the propaganda arms of both. I mean, JFK said we we're going to go to the moon, and Russia and Russia got to space before, so this was not something that was a cinch deal, and. I don't know. I having actually I can remember watching it and when it happened and the, the heat of the Cold War at that time unless now this is possible but this opens up again the bigger conspiracy theory. I mean if the governments 
of Russia and the United States and China are all behind closed doors, smoking cigars together. Oh, they yeah, they really think the U.S. went to the boo. Oh, right. Yeah, I don't, I just can't quite, that's possible. And I think out of the three scenarios, my scenario number four, if, if, I still find the very backwards, poorly planned. I mean, we really just cobbled it together. We were very lucky we made it to the moon and back is the illusion that I have in my head, which as a believer in many conspiracy theories, I can concede that this is at least partially a delusion. But, you know, you go with your gut and Frank's going with his gut. Uh, so it's really a tricky thing. Um, they will really never know. That's even the most interesting part of all about the conspiracy theories about landing on them or any of them. Really, who shot JFK? They could open up a vault whenever that final day and re- and that could be something that the CIA put together and prepared for that specific day in the future to cover up what really happened anyway who knows unless you were there and even if you were there do you really know what happened in a given instance now of course i just wanted to mention i have absolutely been immersed in the world of science fiction of all sorts and love, love, love science fiction. I love spaceships, aliens, lasers, monsters, laser swords. I love everything. It's just a genre that I really dig. Star Wars, of course. I was nine years old. And it was in May of 1977. And a little black and white television in the kitchen. And uh, I was not aware that's of a movie called Star Wars. And it was... The five o'clock news, and there was at towards the end of the five o'clock news, the reviewer came on, and there's a new movie coming out this weekend, Star Wars, and uh, here's a scene from it, and it showed the X-wings and the Tie Fighters fighting, and I looked over and I saw that scene on that little grainy black and white television. I'm like, wait, wait, what, what? And they showed a few more scenes. I'm like, wait, wait, what? This looks what? This looks amazing. This is coming out. My mother's like, oh, yeah, I read something about that in the newspapers. Star Wars is supposed to be great. You want to go see it? I'm like, yes. <laughs> and I, 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 I did not have any, because I was nine. You know, I didn't really, I don't think I was getting Starlog magazine at that point. Starlog was actually super new at that point anyway. Or any news source to, to, have, to have known about Star Wars. And uh, I mean, it's just impossible to convey. And I've said this so many times. It's impossible co- to convey what an enormous event it was in my life and my whole generation's life to see Star Wars. You can't imagine it from today's perspective. We live in a, a world that everything is inspired by, influenced by Star Wars. Uh, we went to the Middlesex Mall there in New Jersey, right off 287, Route 287. We went to see the movie and it just floored me. I, I was amazed. It was everything I ever wanted and only saw glimpses of spaceships, Monsters, aliens, lasers, you know, everything. It was everything. 
And I remember coming home and we were riding on the swings. I'm like, I'm Luke Skywalker. <laughs> it was such a momentous moment. And I don't know that, I know no one this day could have a moment like that. No kids could have a moment like that because, you know, the amount of science fiction that you could get your hands on back then was very, very limited, right? Especially as a kid, you know. There may have been a few cartoons, you know, you might see some old sci-fi movies, Godzilla movies on TV. But this brought everything that I loved together in such a massive way. You know, and as Kevin Smith says, I mean, for Generation X, this was our Vietnam. The seeing star of the first Star Wars was this life-changing, era-defining moment. And I know it's hard to understand for people that are younger or older. I was in the sweet spot, absolutely the right age and for it to completely just uh, amaze me right and then that opened the tidal wave of many other space based science fiction from a revived Buck Rogers to Battlestar Galactica to just again so much stuff and the um, the focus on the the space I mean I would say Star Wars is a space opera a space opera genre Years later, I found out that there were so many books and, and so much... I mean, Star Wars was extremely derivative of Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers, and especially the Foundation trilogy by, was it Asimov? Um, where they had uh, laser swords and a guy named Han and a, a whole planet that's one big city like Coruscant. Oh, and also uh, robots, of course. R2-D2, C-3PO, Mouse Robot, Death Star Droid, R5-D4, all of them right? I was, I remember being in nursery school and my friend coming, going over to a friend's house. This would have been like real early seventies. And he had a few toy robots and I had never seen a toy robot before. And I was just, utter, again, that was a moment of amazement seeing a little toy robot. And I thought those were the only toy robots that, that were ever made. Like he had like these two little toy robots and that there were no other ones. Cause to me, there were none, you know, it didn't make any sense, but to a child's mind, so anyway, <clears throat> all the robots in Star Wars, just amazing. So as you can tell, my love for this genre runs deep and it runs hard, which is why it makes it a little sad, a little difficult for me to go to the next section of my talk here about how, how the theory that space does not exist. This is a tough one. This is a bitter pill to swallow, but we have, I have to go on this topic as I've done many times on my show. We, this has to be examined. There's no way around it. You're not going to like it, but, you know, we have to go this way. So the idea that space is not real uh, is usually an idea that is only associated with um, the heavily religious or the flat earth people, right? Which uh, is, to me, without getting too deeply into it, um associating ideas with unsavory characters and groups seems to be a way to steer the public mind away from certain ideas. So if you don't want to be considered some sort of holy roller or flat earth fanatic nut job, you better stay away from this idea that space is not real, you know. But this idea does not have to be associated with any of that stuff, right? So the idea is in some way, 
the world we're living in is constructed by technology, by another race of beings that are much more advanced than we currently are, right? And that we are living in essentially uh, a built world, right? Now, of course, the flat earthers or the religious people, oh, God, God created it without going any deeper into what God actually is. I'm saying for the purpose of this theory, this world was constructed, right, uh, by an intelligence as a place to put the humans using technology. And again, I don't think this is impossible, and it, and there, and it is certainly possible. <coughs> the idea, well, how do they build it? A lot of people are very limited in their thinking to three-dimensional thinking. So it has to be a, a, a big flat circle with a dome over it. And that's what the flat earthers think. There's a, a dome called the firmament, which is actually from the Bible, the term firmament. <coughs> and so the dome, they're saying, is essentially um, <coughs> like a big screen. Either the stars and planets are being projected on it or the stars and planets are real objects, but they're much smaller and much closer, right? I think that this view of things is extremely limited, that uh, I think we have to include higher dimensional geometries in the construction of this place, right? That is, go beyond the third dimension, there's a fourth, fifth, sixth dimension in theory of spatial dimensions. Again, this is not anything magic, God, or anything. It's just higher, higher spatial dimensions that exist in a material, material universe. So the idea that instead of it being a flat plane with a dome over it, it could be an actual ball like we imagine the Earth is, but it has another ball around it. So instead of it being a dome, it's actually a sphere within a sphere. And then that has projections on it, right? That could easily be done in four-dimensional space, right? Whereas you would not, in 3D, you wouldn't find any any places where it's attached to something. All those attachments would be done in 4D, right? Of course, that's all very spatial thinking. It could be a construct of the mind, right? What we think of as a computer simulation because computer simulations are the highest form of tech that can render things like that. So in the idea that this world is a construct of, the, of a mind like a three-dimensional, you know, virtual computer reality or um, a, a dreamlike experience created by a higher mind, right, then... There really is no, uh, you know, no limit to what things could be. So space could exist as we're imagining it, but the whole world again is constructed. But I think for the I think for the purpose of this uh, this angle, we're talking about the world we're living on is is specifically a, a building, a construct created by a more advanced race of beings as a place to put us, the humans, right. There is no such thing as space. It's a big screen where things are being projected, right? I know, I know, <laughs> I know. So the idea is that the backstory of this would go something like human beings were the result of some sort of genetic experiment gone wrong, and uh, 
were not were were were, were uh, considered for uh, you know annihilation, as as many holy books talk about the creation of humans and then the destruction of the human race, as as that the gods desire to destroy the human race. Some of the gods wanted to preserve the humans. They weren't to be allowed in the general interdimensional society, so they had to stash us away in this in this space. So we are the descendants of uh, you know test subjects, and we are we are considered sort of these little runts, these little creeps, these stupid little jerks, and the other beings in the universe are much smarter and better than us in all ways, and we've been stuck on this in this little um, little zoo kind of construct, this little ant farm kind of space, kind of a crappy situation to be in, right? And if uh, you were to tell people that, that wouldn't be very fun. It would be kind of uh, devastating to learn that. So the idea is those that are controlling the situation, again, individual beings, of, a, of another race of intelligent beings. We're not talking about gods or angels or demons, or maybe that's the interpretation of these beings. Listen to uh, Dave in Kentucky's um, sermon series about how you can in- interpret the Bible as talking about aliens and things and not, you know, the vague vision of gods and angels that a lot of people have. <clears throat> that being that we're here, they figured may as well make the best of the situation and create an environment for the humans that's not just physically uh, a world for them to live on, but create uh, a scenario, an illusion, a lie, that will make them feel much better about themselves, right? And so the vision of the, you know, the construct we're living in being a planet floating through the cosmic void, orbiting the the star Sol in the solar system with other planets, with our moon orbiting around us, right? In this interstellar space that you can actually travel in spaceships, right? In this scenario, that is a complete fiction. It does not exist. There is no space. But it makes us feel so much better about ourselves that we... We're told we are the only intelligent species as far as we know. And we arrived here through a series of physical stages. The Big Bang, evolution, etc. There's all a scientific explanation for all of it. There does not need to be any... Is it, is, it was an undirected process. This is what science, big science tells us. An undirected process. And we arrived here. We are alone on, on spaceship Earth floating through the cosmic void. And in order to reinforce this, I think, you know, it is a beautiful vision and it's romantic. And as I said, I love the visions. I love the genre. I love the idea of space and spaceships and everything. The uh, profusion of space and spaceship-related fiction uh, that we saw in the 20th century has just exploded and Star Wars was a linchpin moment, a watershed moment in that um, attempt, you know, so it was not a movie where they're saying, see, space really exists. You can actually travel through it in spaceships. It just was the backdrop of the movie. 
which people even said was, was almost like a fairy tale that used spaceships and outer space as a backdrop. Um, subtly reinforcing, if anyone had any doubts, that outer space is absolutely real, spaceships are real, other planets are real, and everything is real. And it's only gotten more and more pervasive after that with Star, you know, Star Trek, obviously, before Star Wars, but then the Star Trek returned in 86 with Next, Next Gen, and of course, that horrible movie in 79, but you know. Anyway, um, so the idea is that this entire genre of outer space, and the idea of outer space is made up, it's not real, but it's done with a a purpose. It is a beautiful lie, you might call it. And it's, uh, though it may not be real, it's something that I think you could understand why they might want to create a scenario like that for us here. Now, that entire theory I just talked about, of course, is pure conjecture, and I would give it, again, a percentage weight. I mean, as I have really, you know, thought about this and researched on this, I think that there's a chance that this is true. But again, I also think that the main, that the 100% mainstream perspective also could be true, right? I think that there's a an idea that when present when when presented with an unanswerable question, a mystery that for some reason you as a human being who have no resources to answer the question are expected to completely embrace one of the possible uh, explanations. This this is belief. I mean, this is absolutely belief. And it can be embellished with, well, that's what the scientists tell us. Or, well, how did they take a picture of the Earth from outer space if, it's, if space isn't real? Right? These are all crutches that people use. I understand you might be taken in and completely believe because of these little things. But when it comes to outer space, what we have is the sky, what we can see with the naked eye, and what each of us can see with a telescope, right? And there's no way of um, really determining if what we're seeing is real in any sense. Obviously, it's a real image, but is it a projection? Is it, a, is it just a false image? Is it just a, a diorama? From our perspective on Earth, looking with the naked eye or with a telescope, we don't know, right? It's just those government agencies that have gone to space and sent probes out there, stuff that we cannot independently verify, that are providing the information upon which we're basing our belief. It's amazing how people seem to completely distrust the powers that be in the government on some things, yet on other things, just completely embrace everything they say without questioning it. I don't think any of these authorities are particularly trustworthy. But in the end, it is better if you can take it, if you can stomach it, to go with the mainstream narrative, I suppose, because it'll make just make your life all that much easier. I personally uh, cannot embrace the mainstream narrative. While I do admit there's a chance it's all true, it 
there's enough stuff out there to make me think there's something wrong with it and to make me look further. Now, when it comes to this thing, I, I mean, again, would it to reveal the truth that there is no space and we're a bunch of these little creeps living in this little zoo, what's the fun in that? It, it would, what purpose would that serve? Yes, it is the real truth, but it's a hard truth. It's a depressing truth. And the lie is so beautiful. Uh, I suppose you might say from an idealistic perspective that you, we need to know the truth no matter what it is. But in this case, I don't know. Well, of course, there are other worlds out. In, in, the, in this theory, there's many other worlds out there, but not like through space, but through, you know, um, interdimensionally stacked. And we could go there, but perhaps not as our human selves. Right. Though each of us is not ultimately really the human, but we're the entity that's observing the human, so we could go observe something else. But for some reason, we want to observe these humans because this particular scenario where test subjects genetically diminished and altered, placed in this artificial world, told endless lies, yet in the light of all that, creating a life experience where little Frankie in 1977, nine years old, can go to see Star Wars and have his life changed. Those are the kind of experiences you can have in a world like this, and they are magical and wonderful and absolutely uh, valuable in the, in, the, in the cosmic scheme of things. So how can we say that, there's, that this is wrong as it's produced experience at least for me, experiences like that and many other experiences in my life that are really wonderful and worthwhile and excellent, right? If it's, if it's, a one, if it's the big lie that's causing that, well, it's just, it may be justified in some way to produce these kind of experiences. And that's why the observing entities are focusing on this place because there's something worthwhile here. Outer space. Space is the place. Back to you, PQ. Yeah, space is the place. Sun Ra said that, uh, and I'm sure other people did before him, but he, he popularized the term. Space is the place. Yeah. Um, great fun. Uh, that was uh, the, the one thing, you know, the, the, the theory that we have in Earth and space is there's this dome over us and it's got all the stars on that what's behind the dome it, it, all of these mitigating uh theories don't take into okay yeah but then what's beyond that is it a solid thing that goes on infinitely forever is it a very thin crust and outside of that there's another one and another one and another one that goes on forever um a flat earth does not pr prove that there is no outer space or that things aren't infinite or big or uh, it's just another like it's it's all a product of the human mind it's like frank talks about 
the awe and wonder as a little kid. I, I would bet he is almost the exact same age that I was when I watched those Apollo flights glued to the television. I mean, it, it, hours and hours of watching grainy, black and white, almost nothing, bouncing up and down. They're on the moon. Of course I'm going to watch it. And as much awe and wonder and effect that Star Wars had on Frank probably had the same oh I became a skeptic after and I'm no I can agree with the people who said yes it was nice to compete with the Russians yes if we really went there it's very cool but can you imagine what else could have been done with that money and today in 2022 spending money to send anything into outer space um yeah, if you got a lot of extra money in your Elon Musk, great, it's your money. Go buy Twitter, go piss away a hundred billion dollars or a trillion zillion to do this thing and bring back some rocks or whatever. Uh, it's mind-boggling how much we spent and spend on these things while there are people who don't have proper health care or facilities so yeah that's politicized the outer space thing a little but again me i like to take that really naive 1887 jules verne um look at the whole thing of outer space and yes you can glom on some modern technology some robots and some odds and ends but that the steampunky Victorian science fiction and outer space concept. Uh, I mean, the, the universal satellite. Uh, what can I tell you? If, if that isn't so, well, actually, it's based on a Philip K. Dick. He had several stories and novels where there was some poor guy that civilization collapsed while they were stuck in orbit over Earth and they were stuck there going round and round with some sort of life support that sustained them. But that's it. There was no place they were ever going. Hey, outer space. Oh, boy. But this was a good one. This was a good one. We got Simon back, and Doc was here. And, 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 and oh, man, this was just too good. Dave in Kentucky tied us all into the science fiction of the scriptures. Up that We're living the good life here on the Overnightscape Central. And here is where I invite you to join us next time on the Central. Yeah, next time around, we're going to talk about elegance. Yeah, that, that, if, you, if you are a Gene Shepard listener, that is one of his highest uh, praise adjectives. That if he called something elegant uh, or talked about elegance, this was like the, the height of the height. And uh, yeah. Elegance is something I don't believe we've discussed here, and uh, it, it opens the door to almost anything, which is always good. So, yes, next week on the Overnightscape Central, we're talking about elegance. And the deadline for uh, your participation is either very uh, late on the 29th, Tuesday uh, of November 
2022, or if you get it to me early on the 30th of November 2022, that will work. But I'd highly recommend you just record it and send it now or soon because, you know, I do the same thing. Things I should, I put them off and yeah, that's not how you get things done in the world. And uh, we would like to hear you. So uh, the email address for you to send your uh, contribution is kpqr.torc at gmail.com. And that's very quick reversal. That's kpqr.torc at gmail.com. And we're talking about elegance next week. And you should be here. Uh, No excuses. No, 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 no. This is it. Uh, I'm I'm calling out everybody this week. And um, until the next time we meet, I hope everybody has a great time, and uh, let us all set the controls for the heart of the fun.